Hey, this is Diva Stewart on Loops. I'm an artist from Bristol and I'm interested in making works that can represent various Nepali British experiences. On this podcast, I would like to introduce you to a prominent figure, our big sister Premila Tamang, currently a PhD student specializing in how children of Gorkhas in UK are exploring their heritage and practicing cultural expressions. She is also the director of the campaign group Gorkha Equal Rights. All her involvements have been a terrific support for our elders and a massive inspiration to the younger Nepali generations. Hope you are ready to follow our voice, taking you back to early as 1800s to uncover over 200 years of history and understand the ongoing relation between Nepal and Britain. Thank you for tuning in. You are now listening to Loops podcast. brought to us by Caribou Projects. Let's go. Okay, so I am now reading Nothing Personal by James Baldwin and a section of the writing that he's uh okay, written. So it says, it is no accident that ancient Scottish ballads and Elizabethan chants are still heard in those dark hills. Talk about a people being locked in the past. To be locked in the past means in effect that no one has no past since one can never access it or use it. And if one cannot use the past, one cannot function in the present. And so one can never be free. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting about basically he's saying that You know, when he talks about ancient scholar, uh, Scottish ballads or the value of these old stories, he's talking about the value of how we need that, you know, of, of history, of historical understanding. Because if we don't know where we're from, it's very difficult. Uh, it says, right, like if one cannot, use, you know, if you don't have know the past, you can't really function in the present. And that... Uh, you know, there's always the um, quote, history repeats itself. So I think it's very much about that, about um, how it is relevant to think about the Gurkhas. I would say on two, on few levels. I mean, there is the Gurkha history that's relevant for the British public. And understanding, yes, this 200 years of loyalty and friendship that the Gurkhas have um, had with Britain, with the crown, in, in a sense, right? In um, how Gurkhas fought for Britain in so many wars, not just the Great World Wars, but even back in the 1800s in Afghan wars or fought uh, even in India. And then later, post-World War, uh, one and two uh, worked to fight in Malaysia and uh, Brunei and also protected British interests in Hong Kong for so many years. Um, you know, Without the Gurkhas, Britain wouldn't be where it is right now. And then the Gurkhas themselves and Nepalis themselves also have to remember history on the Nepali side. Why did Nepal sell its sons or send its sons 
<laughs> which, uh, you know, it's it sounds like, okay, so why did Nepal send its sons away? And what was the context in which so many people would go and fight in strange lands, you know, for a queen they never met uh, or knew about? There was no telly back in the day. You know, what was the conditions, the historical and historical social conditions that uh, compelled young men to leave? So there's a lot of layers of historical history that also needs to be recognized there. But it's actually a special diplomatic treaty, right? It's actually a special condition in which uh, Nepal is allowing a foreign country to recruit soldiers on its land. Nepal benefits from that as well. So that history also needs to, uh, for Nepali people to understand that in the way that ethnic minorities have been treated. And series of governments stand to benefit so much as a poor country from the money that the UK government pays annually, which doesn't always filter to the rest of the people. So, you know, there's these histories, which is, I would say, of two different nations, but certainly those two nations will need to understand you know, where the Gurkhas were, how relevant they were in their own country's histories. And then there's also the layer of family history itself, how um, older pensioners, veterans, uh, widows should share their experiences and uh, pain, stories and traumas to the younger generation so they understand that they don't, uh, they know not to, be placed in situations where their rights, uh, where they're not treated equally, you know, or where their rights can be taken away so easily. So, you know, I would say that's kind of like a threefold uh, element that strikes me from this quote in the importance of, of history and stories. But a lot of young people had no clue what was going on, uh, including even though I'm a little older, <laughs> including myself. And for me, it was uh, it, what's, what inspired me, first of all, just seeing very old pensioners walk the streets and protest. I'd never seen pensioners protest in my life like that. I do know that happens in the UK, but, you know, to see from your own community uh, be doing that and then uh, all these soldiers, you know, ex-soldiers who are your grandfather's age, just standing in the rain and really horrid conditions, not eating anything. 24-hour hunger strike relay was warning to the government to say, listen, if you don't do this within 13 days, we are going to be serious and we're going to fast on to death. But even within the 24 hours, when somebody is, you know, in their 60s and 70s, standing out there and the weather is so horrible you get very concerned for their health seeing how they were treated in the rain the police took away the chairs of the old veterans i mean one of them is 75 uh, people made to sit in the wet floor all night the veterans were not allowed to sleep it was against the rules so police would come and check in to see they 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 were arbitrary some one of the nights when it was just women then they uh they left the women alone they let the women sit on chairs 
and they let the women have umbrellas, but they didn't let uh, the women sleep either. Ms. Puspara Nagole, widow of a, of a veteran, she uh, was going to fly in from Nepal and it was her first time in the UK as well. So she was flying in from Nepal and then she was under the obligatory quarantine rules. Poor woman, she was in England for the first time and then by the, you know, after the quarantine in the hotel and being able, I think she was only able to go out for two days, uh, not even see much. And then she went straight onto the hunger strike. And uh, understanding that people were so dedicated that they would be uh, even flying in from a different country, you know, to put their lives on the line, that was really something. One of the things that really caught my eye in the very beginning on the first day of the hunger strike relay, when I sat and got to talk to the veterans, introduced myself, I said, hey, I'm a PhD student. I want to find out about young Gurkhas, but obviously I see you also have had a lot of issues and I would like to learn from you. And he told me, when I was in service, we learned how evil the Japanese were. You know, we learned from our forefathers who fought in the world wars that, you know, it was just war because we had to fight against Japan because Japan was taking over the world. What we didn't realize was as we started working for the British, the British were doing the same things to the world that they were saying the Japanese were doing. Uh, so it really <laughs> made me think about colonialism and imperialism. Uh, I found that consciousness of empire quite interesting that the veterans were quite aware about it you know the kind of caught between the rock and a hard place what i found interesting with the older generation and how they had so much to say was i was curious why they didn't say it to their children it feels that uh there was this disconnect between the older generation and part of that i think is you know perhaps aspects of Asian Nepali culture where you want as a parent you always want to be protective and so you don't want to share sad stories or trauma to your children you know so you act really strict but actually there's a lot of trauma underneath and um, a lot of the veterans here and a lot of the elderly pensioners in the UK who are from, you know, Gurkha backgrounds, either as Gurkha veterans or their widows or couples. They don't really have much immediate family in the UK. They came after the settlement rights were achieved, but they were not allowed to bring their children because their children were already old. And there was even a fight for a long time for families to be allowed to bring children who were over 18 so because of that, a lot of the, 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 the largest bulk of suffering uh, is from these pensioners who retired before 1997. Then you have perhaps maybe uh, your father's generation or, you know, many who were able to come here and bring their children as teenagers finished after 1997. So in a sense, they got half equal rights because the ruling... Uh, from the Ministry of Defense regards Gurkha pensions is that there's a pension scheme called the Armed Forces Pension Scheme, which is for those who 
retire after 1997. Those before that were given the Gurkha pension scheme. And then those who, you know, if they uh, were half and half in between, then they were able to move to the other armed forces pension scheme. So I think because most, uh, most of, say, the parental generation here, um, they still have a huge loss of pensions, but not to the degree as the elders, and also they have wider networks. So their children are established in jobs, um, even after their service, whether it's as a security guard, um, you know, most of work like that. Um, they don't complain as much, perhaps, you know? Part of it is just exactly to say, listen, we're here now, let's get on with the job, and um, let's not try to fight for everything and rock the boat. We have to be good uh, citizens, especially when most of the Nepalis here haven't been here for many generations. Most Nepalis only started settling in the UK after 2004. And so as a very new migrant community where it seems that the public have given you this goodwill to be able to settle in the country, the last thing you want to do is be shouting on the streets and saying it's not enough. Uh, but it is quite interesting just how words like imperialism, colonization, racial discrimination, uh, they get uh, used about even amongst older people. I never heard that before, you know? And I think that is also the influence of Black Lives Matter, where people then become a little bit uh, more, uh, less scared to point out racism. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. Because, you know, Gurkhas have that really interesting uh, space as an ethnic minority in the UK. You know, as Gurkhas, uh, it's almost a different type of model minority and often very xenophobic and negative stereotypes for different types of people of color. But for Gurkhas, it's suddenly like, oh, you're a Gurkha. Yeah, there's all this fantasy and romance and idealism about what the Gurkha is. Almost sometimes as, as saviors of many British uh, men, saviors of empires, saviors of different soldiers and wars, you know. Um, and uh, Gurkhas have this very special place uh, within... Uh, UK military history, but one of the things that the Gurkhas are fighting for is the children's rights and dual citizenship, because they are aware that if you are going to, they they think, okay, it's great, you know, the British public love us, the Queen loves us, right, but how long is that going to last? One day something might happen where we're going to get kicked out. And if we're going kick, to get kicked out, or maybe we might not get kicked out, but our children, maybe they do something wrong or whatever, they get kicked out. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to call home? There's a lot of uh, veterans who were made redundant uh, far below the 15-year uh, threshold in order to qualify for pensions. As low as the pensions was, there's many that don't even have any pensions. And uh, when I talked to them, they said, you know what, we might never get it because we were made redundant, but we're still here to fight to uh, be able to ensure a better future for our children. The 
problem with the protest is that in British media, especially, uh, you know, last year, it's all framed as a pension issue, but it's not about just pensions. It's about racism. It's about equality. It's about the kind of different inequalities that they experience. Just something simple, such as not being able to see your family for three years. So Gurkhas could only see their family once every three years. And that's on unpaid leave as well. Uh, you know, maybe they get to see their dad once every few years only. And because everyone that you go to school around with or the community that you grow up with have a lot of people like that, it's just so normalized. One man I spoke to, the 75-year-old gentleman who was shivering in the rain, he quit the army because he wasn't allowed to go back home for his dad's funeral. So in the end, he thought that that was more important. Pensions, right? That's very easy to quantify in numbers. And you can say, okay, fine, pre-1997, you know, this is how much a British officer uh, within a rank gained per annum for pension. And it was almost always almost a thousand percent less with Gurkha equivalent, you know? So how do you work out the maths or the time lost of family time? How do you work out the maths of somebody's psychology, the sort of trauma that they build, the, the even, you know, the everyday uh, right to family life that other soldiers were awarded? Now, if this was the case for all uh, British Army soldiers, or let's say just overseas soldiers from the Commonwealth, then, you know, you could argue that this and that's, that just comes with a job and, and that's just the way it is. But when it's just the Gurkhas that are singled out that way, in the terms of disruption of, uh, of family dynamics, you know, and it is also something that I hear uh, about how men will gather together and how they they cry, how they get drunk and they will cry about not having seen their kid born or not, you know, being able to miss out on their children's lives, but they will never say that to your face. Other women in the hunger strike, Shaindra um, Didi, she's, I think she was 19 when she was widowed. She had her uh, child very early but also was widowed very early. And um, so you have those who suffered, people, you know, people who suffered from not even seeing their children grow up. Uh, but then you also have, also have widows, you know, where like they never even had that chance as well. And then to find out that they only get 60% of pensions. You know, when you're from a very, very poor society, then you think, well, even if it's so tiny, it's better than nothing. Yeah. So that's, yeah, the, the story of women is an even more silenced history. Yeah, and that's, yeah, so it was important to have a woman in the hunger strike as well to say, hey, you know, this is not just about pensions, not just about men. Nepal has over a hundred different languages, ethnicities, and castes. And those aren't dialects. They will have sub-dialects underneath them as well. And, um, you know, at the time of the World Wars, actually, uh, 
Nepalis of all races, races, ethnic backgrounds, uh, all uh, were formed the Gurkha army. It wasn't majority Magar, Gurung Limbu, or Rai, these typical tribes that are now known, you know, to have a lot of Gurkha recruits. Um, Britain's always uh, played with uh, the idea of regional, um, of, of recruiting soldiers from particular regions uh, as a way to uh, rule or subjugate other areas. So the Sikhs, for example, are also considered a martial race. And then the Maasai in Kenya uh, are also considered warriors uh, under like British, British colonial constructs. So this idea of certain uh, tribes or races becoming uh, you know, uh, naturally born warriors uh, has been used quite a bit throughout British history. Um, so anyway, but moving back to the point of the Nepali caste system, the Nepali caste system is a modified Hindu caste system. What happened was, you know, a little over 200 years ago, around the same time as well, when you know Nepal then decided to have treaties with with Britain is you know when Nepal was becoming unified, um, these were done by conquest of rulers from West Nepal, right? And these were Hindu rulers. They decided uh, one way to rule Nepal was it would be easier to have a one religion, one nation, one language policy. It was a dynasty that was ruling Nepal, right? Uh, with Prithvi Narayan Shah considered the founding father of Nepal. And then this dynastic uh, monarchy uh, was then overthrown uh, by, it continued, but it was overthrown by uh, a new dynasty called the Ranas. And in effect, it was this kind of um, family of prime ministers, one after the other, either the brother or the cousin or the son or something, you know, uh, that took turns in ruling Nepal. And so they then solidified even more what the caste system was going to be. So then they created a law called the Muliki Ain, and it's, um, it was a codified law uh, of different rules for the castes. And within that, they divided the castes into, you know, you had the Brahmins at the very top, you had the Chetris in India, it'll be called the Kshatriyas, you know, it's the warrior class. But then where to put all these different tribes <laughs> or ethnic groups that were originally not Hindu, how do you fit them in, you know? Are they an untouchable? What are they, right? And so this became the bulk of the uh, Gurkha recruits as well. So these different castes, um, they decided to call them the Matwali. Now, you want, do you know what Matwali? <laughs> Matwali means alcohol drinker or basically alcoholics because, you know, um, like, like a pure Brahmin would not touch alcohol, right? So we were the alcohol 
shrinkers or the matwalis. And then this was also divided into two. So you had the non-enslavable alcoholics and then you had the enslavable alcoholics. And this was, who knows, a possibly divide and rule tactic because the ethnic groups that surrounded the uh, capital of Kathmandu, the original, you know, uh, ethnic groups that inhabited before the Rana and Shah rulers came over, uh, the Newars, the Tamangs, there are different groups around there. They, um, you know, they were not allowed to join the Gurkha forces. And yeah, maybe it's because if they got skills, they'd take over the valley, who knows? And so then recruitment centers were on either side instead. So it was you know, in the far east of Nepal, where the Rai and Limbus, the Kirat peoples were, and then in the far, and then in the west, where the Gurungs and Muggers were. And uh, post-World War, what happened is uh, it, it's possible that the idea of the martial race also became actually solidified post-World War. Pre-World Wars, Chetris, anybody joined, you know, uh, almost one in five men or so, something like this, you know, I will have to check the, uh, of Nepalis went to fight in the different world wars. And so many of them went missing as well, you know, killed, wounded, missing. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that army was made up of everybody, whether they were Chetri or maybe um, poor Brahmins, who knows, you know, it, it was all mixed. And then... I was reading this uh, old uh, ethnographies and research into Gurkha communities and uh, especially past the World Wars, those older veterans, their generation, the parents did not want their, because they'd seen the suffering experience, the horrors of war, they did not want their sons and their children to join at all. And so Britain had to come up with different types of strategies. There's stories of recruiters or strangers coming to Gurung villages, for example, and mothers hiding away their children or telling their kids to go, you know, hide in the jungle before they can get captured to be made as soldiers. It's a very different attitude from uh, now where being a Gurkha soldier is like the best and thousands of people compete for it, right? It's a total 180 attitude. And part of uh, the recruitment, then what happened was it the, the British thought it's much easier just to recruit. This isn't written in stone. This is what's implied, right? Um, you know, it's much easier to recruit people from certain areas when you have family networks. So this is why whole villages in East and West Nepal that come from particular tribes, it's almost like somebody's a Gurkha one way or another, you know? And being a soldier is a way to get out of that poverty. So what happened with these people is not only were people considered uh, classified as uh, out alcoholic races almost, um, you know, it, it was so entrenched, you had very sexist laws. So in law, if you were, say, an upper caste Brahmin, Hindu Brahmin man, and you were found to have a relationship with an untouchable or Matwal, you know, somebody outside your caste, then um, 
you could be demoted. So, you know, from being a Brahmin, you could become a Chetri. So like your caste status is your demote, your caste status is demoted. And maybe you get like, I don't know, 90 lashes publicly, both man and woman. But if you're, uh, if you're a lower caste man, like a Matwali or a Dali, an untouchable, and you were found having a relationship with a high caste woman, Brahma women, then you'd get the death penalty. So <laughs> you'd have these very, very strong uh, anti-intermarriage laws. You know, we think about uh, South Africa and apartheid, there were very, very strict laws against intercaste marriage in the old days. Uh, and so that keeps uh, tribes within themselves, but you know, it, it just um, goes to show how entrenched the caste system was itself in how people were able to access services, get education, uh, and so on and so forth. And this is still, uh, you know, a problem in Nepal to this day. There have been huge improvements, but, you know, there's still so many big remnants of the caste system in the ways that uh, there's very little representation of different ethnic minorities in certain seats of power in the government. Uh, yeah, so what happened with, with this, mar the idea of the martial race? So basically the British considered certain races as uh, naturally gifted warriors. But they didn't think of Nepalis as naturally gifted warriors from day one, even though there was this 200 relationship. It kind of became stronger and stronger over time. And then after the World Wars, when you know, Nepalis had won Victoria Crosses. This just raised up the level of uh, how Nepalis were conceptualized. And then uh, post-World War, then the uh, British were saying that, okay, certain, some of these Nepalis are, belong, uh, uh, are martial races. And so they considered that the four, four groups, you know, two in the West, which is the Mogar and Gurung, and two in the East, which is the Rai and Limbu. And uh, they said, okay, these are the martial races, you know, they're the fiercest people in all of Nepal, um, which might sound like a great stereotype, but what happens is that just creates whole communities of generational recruitment into the army. And uh, on one hand, it's helped raise some of these communities, uh, you know, into better social economic levels with the money and the experiences that Gurkhas were able to bring from abroad. But on the other hand, it's almost draining young men all the time, right? There's always somebody ready to be recruited and there's always an uncle who can teach you how to get you into an army or train you and, you know, <laughs> make you run every morning so that you're well built or, uh, or whatnot. So it becomes... Um, very difficult, and especially once the, the, the Gurkhas have retired and they go back to the village, there isn't much of a life there, right? Or, you know, they've realized that, no, actually, they would like their kids to go to a good school. And all the things that, uh, that goes back to the pensions, you know, that the pensions are formulated because it's considered fair, is kind of thinking of uh, farmers' level, a subsistence farmer level of uh, pay 
And that's not enough for a farmer to, uh, upon retirement with a Gurkha pension, to send their kids to good schools. So what happens is they realize, listen, there isn't enough money. So they're going to go out again and they're going to go abroad again and work as manual laborers in different countries. Uh, leaving just, yeah, it, it becomes very difficult for the communities just to have so many absent young strong men. The conditions obviously have been so much better than the world wars. Uh, and because people are able to bring consumer goods uh, from back into very poor villages, it becomes uh, glamorous and a bit of an adventure for young men to aspire to. You know, it's a way to get out, as you said, a way to get out of poverty. I mean, these, uh, these, the villages and the ethnic, you know, the the ethnic communities and their localities from which the uh, many of the Gurkhas come from, you know, because they've been historically marginalized as these alcoholic castes in the first place, this is why they were poor. If they came from very well-off families or, you know, had very good levels of uh, decent standards of living, nobody would feel compelled to go out uh, into the world and become a soldier, you know. I know that's putting it in very simplistic terms at the moment, and there's exceptions to everything, but it makes you think about the martial race. And the martial race was also one way to pivot uh, in the English. Like Part of it is kind of a... There's, there's different literature on it. There's a very good one by an anthropologist named Lionel Kaplan, and it's called Warrior Gentlemen, the Gurkhas in Western Imagination. Uh, or something, yeah, I hope that's the exact title. The martial race itself as a concept was an imperial construct, which was not just for Nepalese, but was also used with different ethnic groups that the um, British, uh, you know, in areas that the British were looking to rule. There's also different feminist scholars who have uh, written about the notion of the martial race and uh, with Gurkhas and how they look at it from a feminist perspective where they look at it as a way to sort of emasculate the um, populations uh, that the British were subjecting. So for example, uh, great, yeah, Nepalis have the stereotype as the martial race. So they would write about how, you know, Nepalis uh, or Gurkhas are so manly. They, you know, on one hand, being an alcoholic, you know, drinking, being a matwali is not great in Nepal's society uh, under the what, you know, the ruling classes view as appropriate or cultured people. But on the other hand, for the British, it was like, hey, yo, here's these guys that we can have a pint with. These are guys that also have a good laugh. They're manly. They're fierce. They're not like these Indians who don't drink so much alcohol. They're not like these, these you know, prissy, feminine Indians. You know, the way, that, I mean, I'm not saying that's what they are, but that's the kind of material that they wrote. And it's one way to really, like, use one group to 
you know, subjugate another for <laughs> for empire, right? You know, and it's a, it's a way to dehumanize Indians. It's a way to dehumanize uh, the rest of the people as well, to say that they were not real men or not manly enough. In the British Army, the superiority of one regiment over another is mainly a matter of training. The same courage and military instinct are inherent in English, Scotch and Irish alike. But no comparison can be made between the martial value of a regiment recruited amongst the Gurkhas of Nepal or the warlike races of northern India and of one recruited from the effeminate peoples of the South. You know, martial races is also quite a divide-and-rule tactic. Maybe <laughs> put it in the simplest terms. Because as, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, Nepalis who have been recruited, all these communities, you know, the ethnic groups who have been recruited as, as uh, warriors, as soldiers, do not have a military background of war. You know, aside from those who are recruited, it's not as if Tamangs or uh, Rais or Dimbus were, you know, always at war for centuries and always being warriors. No, most of them were subsistent farmers. Yeah. And it's about where can you uh, find a cheap deal, as one veteran said, Siam uh, Thakuri is a wonderful veteran that I met, and he said we were the cheapest of the cheap. Yeah. And in terms of diplomatic history, not the martial races, but the Ranas were also very good at understanding that the British uh, needed Nepali recruits, so especially in the world wars, they would be there are all these old historical documents and code language uh, really where the Ranas were bargaining with Britain on, you know, getting more money out of being able to send Nepalis. And Nepalis themselves who were becoming, so, you know, who became soldiers didn't really get much money at all. Um, but the Rana government certainly did. And they, they kind of bargained uh, Nepali bodies that way. So that's why um, uh, this scholar, Mary Duchenne, calls Gurkhas as diplomatic currency. And they felt that the, they created regiments that were purely based on the caste, the British. So, you know, if you were in the 7th Gurkha Rifles, for example, I think they were mainly Rai. And then you'd have a different Gurkha rifle, and that's mainly all Gurung. Um, they thought that by recruiting people from uh, the same areas, right, you have already these ties, these cultural uh, understandings, language, shared, shared tribal languages. It makes it easier to command a unit that way. So that's, that's what was done. You know, it could have easily been some other group. Uh, it wasn't some inherent quality. But that's not to say that one shouldn't have pride in the sort of legacy that was created afterwards. You know, it's in a sense, maybe one was made a martial race, right? Not that one was a martial race to start with. And it also uh, is very easy for the Nepal government 
being Hindurana rulers, I mean, who are you going to sell off easily, right? You're going to sell off the people that are ethnic minorities that are quite expendable in a sense, you know. They didn't um, allow lots of, uh, you know, different Hindu groups, for example, to become Gurkhas. Yeah, it was the non-Hindu groups then. Maybe to be made into Hindu assimilation as, or easily <laughs> expendable or both, you know. could could I'm sure there's a lot of different factors um, at play, but none that really, uh, by any, uh, you know, whatever the reasons were, and there are many, um, it all still points to how uh, very marginalized ethnic minorities were exploited. Most of these men left as teenagers. So, you know, the years of their life where they themselves, if they were living in the village, could have learned about a lot of different cultures and rituals or... Uh, you know, um, been able to continue to speak their tribal language, they also weren't afforded that luxury, in a sense, right? For them, what they saw as a luxury. So, uh, yeah, even for... Um, one of these uncles said, you know, Gurkhas were neither here or there. I'm not fully Nepali, I'm not really English either, I don't know where I am because I've just, since I was so young, I have to go around the world and go to different places. I didn't really have time to develop my cultures. And that that history is, yeah, important, um, even in the way we sort of move forward in our culture. The exploitation of Nepal's ethnic minorities uh, due to this caste system as well is uh, explains a lot of other aspects of Nepali history as well. You know, when the Ranas were ruling, for example, uh, ethnic minorities, people were not even allowed to go to school. And uh, you could be jailed for reading a book. And it's a great way to keep people, right? If people are not educated, then it's a great way to keep them down. And um, it explains why even for Nepali language, a lot of writing and intellectual uh, li literature and things like that, it bloomed in India where people went in exile instead. And in one way or another, uh, anybody with any Nepali roots, that Gurkha history is part of our identity in some degree. So Gurkhas um, have been such a major part of different formations of world history. I have already seen the fetishization of Nepaliness and Nepali history here with the diaspora. This is always the case with, we always want to know the best about ourselves, right? Um, there's a very sad saying by one of the veterans who said, Gurkha's blood is shed all over the world. And so, uh, it's important that when you have that pride to also honor that history, to not just have that just as rhetoric, right? And then 
how to be able to hold that on. Um, so that ethnic heritage and stories and remembering is a joint process. It's not just the younger generation uh, in a diaspora that finds it difficult to uh, understand their parents' culture, but you have to they have to understand that their parents' cultures themselves were quite repressed or oppressed, yeah. And so their parents themselves are in this mode of what anthropologists would call like ethnic revivalism. So uh, you are asking a question on cultural transmission, right? And like the transmission of traditions, for example, and heritage and stories. And that's a struggle for every generation. I think there are several ways. Understanding military history, we can read it in books, and certainly that is really, really important. There is so much literature online that is starting to develop and books that we can get. It is slowly being written about. It is quite new. You know, there are a lot of old books on Gurkhas written by British military officers that will only just speak in terms of stereotypes. But the critical pieces on Gurkhas um, is very few, but it's growing and it can easily be found online as well. Um, and then the other aspect, though, is actually to speak to veterans, to speak to different family members, ask them your experiences. There's a living history, you know, and sometimes that can even be richer than any of the books that you're going to read. Then you understand the price, and then when you understand the sacrifices that have been made, and then the price that even your fathers, your forefathers, their wives, widows, grandmothers, everybody has had to pay, that will help you understand your situation more and how to be able to make difference in the future, you know, how to stand up for other people's rights, how to uh, stand up for your own rights, uh, how to uh, understand that, you know, you are where you are because of particular conditions in history. Well, how are we going to be treated when we are old pensioners, right? Are we also going to be neglected and discarded, even though we think everything's fine right now? So these are uh, the important lessons on how to be able to learn from history, to try and fight for what we can now in order to ensure a better future. I mean, this is what um, every Gorkhas soldier has always done. A big thank you to Premila Didi for guiding us through such deep history and giving us clarity on present situations. Gratitude to our elders. You've been the main source of inspiration. We owe it all to you. Lastly, a massive thank you to Caribou Projects for the opportunity and support. It means a lot to have our voices heard. This episode was made possible thanks to funding from Arts Council England.